Welcome to the markets. Hello again, along with Max Armstrong, Orion Samuelson here for our weekly visit and a look at markets from Wall Street to the wheat fields of Kansas, the soybean fields of the Midwest, and the livestock feedlots across the country. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and we thank you for joining us every week for this event as we check the activity to end the trading week, but some of the headlines that occurred during the trading week. Starting today, Wall Street with a good finish for the week after some heavy losses during the week. Today, moderate jobs growth in September offered relief from a spate of dismal economic data this week that shook up the markets and fueled concerns that the world's largest economy may be sliding into a recession. A rally in technology stocks led by Apple also helped to lift the benchmark indices at the end of a roller coaster week. After losing about 3% over Tuesday and Wednesday, the S&P 500 today logged its biggest one-day gain since August 16th. Still for a third consecutive week, though, the Dow and the S&P 500 lost ground. We'll look at some of those numbers here in a moment. But the Labor Department's report today showed non-farm payrolls increased by 136,000 last month, and the unemployment rate dropped to a 50-year low. But at the same time, manufacturing payrolls declined for the first time in six months. And for some reason, the report today was given a title by an analyst who said, it's sort of a Goldilocks report. Goldilocks report, not strong enough to move the Federal Reserve away from cutting rates at the end of October, but it's not weak enough to make you concerned about the labor market or the consumer. That according to a market analyst at Personal Wealth Management in New York. As a matter of fact, bets that the Fed will cut interest rates have climbed sharply this week after a dramatic contraction in manufacturing, cooling private sector hiring, and a fall in service sector activity pointed to widening fallout from the U.S.-China trade war. But today, at the end of the week, uh, traders are seeing a 77% chance that the central bank will lower borrowing costs at its policy meeting later this month. And that feeling is up up from 40% on Monday. Although market participants have been selling stocks and buying bonds, at the end of the day, you see And you say, gee, I still have to have some return for my investment, and that's going to come from stocks. Apple shares up 2.8% after a report that the company would ramp up production of iPhone 11 models. And so let's look at the numbers for the day and for the week. Dow Jones ended up 368 points, 1.4%, ending the week at 26,569. The S&P 500 up 41 points for the day. That's up 1.4%, ending the day at 2,951. And the NASDAQ 
unofficially closed up 107 points, or one and a third percent, ending the week at 79.80. For the week, though, the S&P down a third of a percent, the Dow down nearly one percent, but the Nasdaq gained nearly half a percent. And the Dow and the S&P 500 fell for the third straight week. During today's session, uh, HP tumbled 9.6% after the computer maker said it would cut up to 16% of its workforce as part of a restructuring plan that would result in an overall charge of $1 billion. The S&P 500 posted 18 new 52-week highs, one new low. The Nasdaq recorded 17 new highs and 70 new lows for the day. And uh, let's take a look at uh, one other market for the week, the oil market. Oil prices are up about 1% today as that increase in U.S. jobs eased some financial market concerns that a strong economy in the world was slowing down. But crude fell more than 5% on the week. That would be the second consecutive weekly decline. Brent Crude futures gained 66 cents to settle at $58.36 a barrel. And uh, the uh, uh, U.S. crude futures up 36 cents, ending at $52.81 a barrel. But on the supply side, some pretty good news for the oil industry this week. Energy Minister of Saudi Arabia said on Thursday that the world's top crude oil exporter had fully restored oil output after the attacks on its facilities last month knocked out more than 5% of global oil supply. So that's history. What about next week? Labor Department expected on Thursday to report its consumer price index for September went up just a tenth of a percent. That would be the same increase as we saw in August. And uh, core CPI likely to go up two-tenths of a percent. That would be slower than August three-tenths percent increase. On Wednesday, the Labor Department will release the Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey, or the JOLTS Report, for August. Tuesday, the Department expected to report its Producer Price Index for Final Demand went up 1.8% on a yearly basis in September. That would be the same as the previous month. The Federal Open Market Committee will publish the minutes from the September 17-18 meeting on Wednesday. And Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell expected to speak on a view from the Federal Reserve before the National Association for Business Economics 61st Annual Meeting on Tuesday. And you'll be sure the Fed chair will get a lot of listeners to what he has to say. In business reports, Delta Airlines expected to report higher revenue and profit when it kicks off its U.S. Airlines third quarter results on Thursday, helped by continued strong travel demand. 
Domino's Pizza likely to report a decline in quarterly same-store sales on Tuesday, hurt by competition from third-party delivery services such as DoorDash and Postmates. And investors will be on the lookout for the company's comments on fortressing strategy in the U.S., The International Energy Agency will publish its monthly analysis of supply, demand, and other trends in the global oil market on Friday. And U.S. Energy Secretary Rick Perry, scheduled to speak on the United States Arctic Energy Vision at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Iceland on Tuesday. So a lot coming up uh, on Monday, Federal Reserve scheduled to report consumer credit data for August, and uh, a lot going on that we'll have to keep an eye on. Some of the news that made headlines in the business world this week, U.S. unemployment rate dropped to near a 50-year low of 3.5% in September with job growth increasing moderately, and that's what helped the market rally the way it did today. And some of the other stories that we looked at and that the market reacted to, we started the week, uh, or about midweek, the U.S. manufacturing sector contracted in September to its weakest level in more than a decade. The Institute for Supply Management said its index of national factory activity fell to 47.8. That's the lowest reading since June of 2009. The U.S. services sector activity slowed to a three-year low in September amid rising concerns about tariffs. But construction spending rose less than expected in August. Construction spending barely up as the largest increase in private residential investment in nine months was offset by a second straight monthly decline in outlays on non-residential projects. Some bankruptcies making news this week. Airline bankruptcies have increased this year at the fastest rate ever. Led by the collapse of India's Jet Airways, British travel group Thomas Cook, and Avianca of Brazil, according to industry data published today. Online airline consulting firm IBA, which has tracked plane fleets, returned to lessers or administrators by 17 carriers that have gone bust so far this year. And the firm said 2019 has seen the fastest growth in airline failure in history. 17 carriers that went bankrupt this year impacting the entire airline industry. The other bankruptcy, another bricks-and-mortar store, the Forever 21 fashion retailer, filed for bankruptcy early in the week as it joined a growing list of those brick-and-mortar players who have given in to the onslaught of e-commerce companies such as Amazon.com. and a landmark court ruling in the European Union. 
Facebook can be ordered to police and remove illegal content worldwide. That coming from Europe's top court in a landmark ruling that rights activists say raises concerns that uh, some countries could use it to silence critics. The judgment means social platforms can be forced to seek out hateful content deemed illegal by a national court in the 28th country block rather than wait for requests to remove posts as it currently does under the EU reels. So a lot going on, and uh, we'll take a look at what's going on in the world of agricultural markets when we continue on the markets. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation. And early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is here here to help. It's been a while since we've had the opportunity to visit with Brian Split from agmarket.net. Welcome back to the studio here. Good to visit with you, sir. Great to be here, Max. Thanks for having me. It's a moving target as this year goes on, but it's it's been that way throughout the year. We've got a crop in the field and we're going to struggle to get it harvested, it appears, in many areas. We're getting a very late start compared to what many producers would like to see. Well, that's right. And uh, we continue to see uh, precipitation. I, I talk to producers across the country and, and uh, up north have been really frustrated with the lack of the ability to get in the field and get work done. But we contrast that with a very dry area to the southeast. Those farmers who have the crop in the field in western Tennessee, western Kentucky, very good yields. They've had no problem with harvest, have they? Well, and like you said, uh, fantastic yields down there, and uh, that's definitely one of the bright spots as far as uh, production and and yields compared to uh, expectations this year. I was looking at some private numbers the other day ahead of the crop report coming up on Thursday in the week ahead, and numbers are circulating around out there that seem to show some people are looking toward an even higher corn yield and corn production for the country. Where are you on that, Brian? Uh, we're in the belief that the yield is going to be uh, brought down uh, over time. And, and so similar to last year, the USDA really overshot yield in the August WASDE report and then revised it lower as we went September through November. And we're looking for a similar pattern this year uh, with the USDA chipping away at yield starting on this October WASDE report. So do you have a number in mind that you folks have put together thus far? Uh, you know, we're going to be in the uh, the mid-160s, uh, really, uh, and that's always one of the, the things in the industry is what is the guess of the USDA and the guess of where the crop is internally. Uh, internally, we think that the yield is going to be closer to the lower 160s, uh, but uh, for this particular report, we're looking at a, a slight revision uh, down around the 166.5 area. So you're certainly not thinking that this is a national average corn yield of 169 bushels that, that some have suggested. No, we're not in that camp. And I know uh, you had mentioned there was a private revision or, or estimate that had come out uh, earlier this week. And um, and they were, like uh, like you said, looking for the yield to come up about a bushel from their, their estimate last month. 
Uh, that is not the camp that we are in. I think they were suggesting that the Iowa average yield was going to be just just shy of 200 bushels. That would be a very strong yield, wouldn't it? It would be a strong yield. Uh, but, you know, we've been getting yield reports over the last couple of weeks. And uh, just the lack of, of yields that have been at or above last year's levels, uh, you know, really makes us take pause in getting too uh, comfortable with the idea that yields are going to be that close to 170 bushels per acre this year. What's your feeling at your firm on soybeans? Where will the soybean yield be? Well, soybeans, uh, I think we're thinking that uh, the yield adjustments could be a little bit more aggressive to the downside there. We've really only heard of of, uh, very small pockets of of yields that have been 70 bushel plus. Uh, And even those areas, uh, those yields sound good, but that's still 10 bushels below their yields last year. Uh, predominantly, we're hearing uh, very consistent yield reports of, of 10 to 20 bushels below last year. So we feel that uh, over the next few months, we're going to see the, the soybean yield on a national average trickle down towards 43 bushels per acre. Those combine reports have been uh, a little bit sporadic. Not too many of them thus far. We'll be getting more and more, and uh, you'll be no doubt watching those, and we'll try to get a better handle on just where the yield is. Well, that's right. Uh, every day and every week we get reports and we try to compile them and uh, see you know, what that means for the big picture. But uh, really, in all reality, um, the thing that matters is how the USDA manages the balance sheet. You know, That's what the trade's going to react from. Uh, we do have a, a, a change to the quarterly stocks uh, versus the expectations, and that was given earlier this week. And that's really going to set the tone because those quarterly stocks for both corn and soybeans did come in uh, substantially lower than where the trade was expecting them to be. That was a surprise and a friendly surprise. I, I think a lot of people were thinking, okay, now they're finally, finally looking at reality at USDA. Many growers have struggled with this uh, USDA assessment of crops this year, haven't they? Well, and I think you could go all the way back to the March quarterly stock report and uh, the subsequent WASDE report in April where the USDA reduced the feed residual demand for corn. And uh, that was really a tough pill to swallow based on the amount of animals on feed and uh, really the rough winter that we had last year. So I think that's uh, a number that has been disputed, and I think this report uh, is where the USDA came clean. From the standpoint of the changed balance sheet, then, you don't have to drop those yields too much to see a very interesting scenario, correct? I mean, if you're, if you're looking at adjusting down a corn yield, maybe two or three or four bushels, this makes the ball game a little more interesting, well, and that's just on the yield. Um, I think in this October report that the USDA is also going to start looking again at the acreage scenario. And uh, even if they don't change the planted acres, we think that the USDA is too high on the percent of the planted acres that we will harvest. Uh, internally, we're thinking that's going to be closer to 89.5% of what was planted will be harvested. And uh, that's going to be a revision of about a million acres of harvestable acres, which is an, another good chunk of production that comes off the balance sheet. Help us sort out these excessive rain amounts. We talked about the rains earlier. The rains have been persistent in some of those places in the northern part of the Corn Belt. But it's the amounts that have turned people's heads. When you when you see five inches dumped into a fairly significant area right across central Iowa, up into areas of Wisconsin and Minnesota, 
Uh, you hear reports of eight inches here in some places. That's crop damaging rain in, in those parts of the Corn Belt, is it not? Well, crop damaging, and, and at the very least, it's going to be something that is going to change the timing of everything in those areas. So uh, that is probably going to lead towards some basis opportunity. So as the grain merchants and buyers realize that the new crop in that vicinity is not going to be coming online as soon as it would have been otherwise, uh, that'll have some short-term basis impacts. And I think that does provide some opportunity for some of the unmarketed grain uh, that is still sitting in bins from the previous harvest. Still, to get us back in touch with reality, it's hard to sustain a rally in this market, it appears, Brian. I mean, after we watched the rally inspired by the USDA earlier this week, uh, it was tough to keep that going. The wheat market, for example, after good gains fell back, with some traders saying, Hey, uh, there's no shortage of wheat in the world right now. We have plenty in terms of supplies. Well, that's right. And, and uh, the Egyptian buying unit, Gask, uh, they recently purchased wheat from France. And so uh, we still are are not competitive uh, internationally on, on the wheat prices. And so we saw, as you mentioned, wheat values come down uh, somewhat drastically over the course of the week. I think the, the corn and soybean markets also hit some major targets. The December corn contract had a gap that it left from the August WASDE report. So the high this week, 392 and three quarters, went right to that gap and filled it. And I think that was a major target that traders wanted to see. South America production, of course, looms large unless they have some kind of a problem. There had been some interest in the fact that they've been dry in areas down there. What's your assessment of it at the current time? Well, dryness down there during planting to me is something that... Uh, will delay their planting. The South American producers want to see it a little bit of a rain before they get the crop in the ground. Now, if that was a, a story where we were hot and dry as we got into the developmental stage of the crop, then I think you'd start to see actual production estimates come down. But uh, for now, it's more of a timing issue than anything. But that could lead to the idea that uh, the longer planting delays go on, uh, the more that the world buyers will come to the U.S. to fill that gap between the last part of the South American old crop and uh, when their new crop comes online. So around your shop, how much talk is there about a harvest time, significant harvest time rally here? Well, we do think that uh, as we go through the next couple of months that we're going to continue to see the USDA revised yield lower. Uh, it does look like the market has made its fall low. That seems very apparent. We've had two USDA reports, both the September WASDE report and the September quarterly stock report, that have had a bullish reaction. So it appears that the market is now in a buy-the-dip mode, and we are establishing an uptrend. And we would uh, expect to see some higher prices as we go through the next few months. Brian Split, agmarket.net. Thanks for coming in, sir. Thank you for having me, as always. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation. And early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is here to help. This past week, I spent a day at World Dairy Expo in Madison, Wisconsin, the 53rd anniversary for that show. Truly a worldwide dairy gathering of producers and suppliers for the dairy industry. 
And I found it interesting because with all of the uh, negative news on the economies of the dairy industry, I was expecting it would have an impact on World Dairy Expo. But talking to Scott Bentley, the general manager of World Dairy Expo, I asked him if the cow numbers were down because farmers couldn't afford to bring their show animals to the show. And he said no. The entry of dairy cow exhibits on a par with what they've seen in previous years, not any change there. So I asked him then, what about the commercial exhibitors who are at the show to sell their products? He said, nope, our exhibitor area totally sold out. I think about 70 new companies that were exhibitors of dairy commercial products at the World Dairy Expo this year year. So they're already making plans for the 54th show coming up next week. Trump administration today unveiled a plan to boost U.S. biofuels consumption starting next year to help struggling farmers, a move that cheered the agriculture industry, but no surprise, triggered a backlash from big oil. The plan would require an unspecified increase in the amount of ethanol that oil refiners must add to their fuel in 2020 and would also aim to remove further barriers to the sale of higher ethanol blends of gasoline like E15. The announcement came from the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. And the deal is widely seen as an attempt by President Trump to mend fences with the powerful agricultural lobby, particularly corn, which of course was outraged by the EPA's decision in August to exempt 31 oil refineries from their obligations under the Renewable Fuel Standards. Senators from Iowa, the nation's biggest ethanol-producing state, welcomed the move. But senators from some of the southern oil states did not welcome the move. But Senator Ernst of Iowa said the president heard the message and has acted on it. And Ernst, who was instrumental in putting together the deal, said it means 15 billion gallons of ethanol will be in the mix. 15 billion gallons of ethanol. And uh, EPA in that same announcement said that the New biofuel blending volume requirements under the renewable fuel standard would be based on the amounts waived over the previous three years. Welcome news to the national corn growers here in this country and to the Renewable Fuels Association as well. And uh, one other note... JBS USA, that's the meatpacking plant that's headquartered in Brazil, announced it will remove a growth drug that's banned by Beijing from its U.S. hog supply, and that would accelerate, they hope, competition for pork exports from the U.S. as China grapples with that devastating African swine fever 
that just keeps on keeping on decimating the pig crop in China. Looking at uh, closing markets today, the prices, uh, corn futures dropped today, profit-taking after the two days of gains this week. Soybeans and wheat edged higher, but it's a quiet trade because traders are waiting for the report that will be due out uh, next week on the 10th of October, and that report will give us a better look at supplies and carryover in the grain market activity worldwide. At the end of the day, uh, today, December wheat was up two cents a bushel. December corn, though, was down three and three quarter cents a bushel. And the November soybean contract ended the day and the week with a gain of four and a quarter cents a bushel. Then taking a look at the livestock picture and that hog market, the lean hog contracts, today fell for the fourth day in a row, extending a losing streak that pulled prices off a two-week high that was hit on Monday. Cattle futures were also weaker today. The market, however, remained underpinned by reports of good demand on the cash market. Physical sales averaging about two to three dollars more than a week earlier. So looking at those prices at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the December lean hog contract down 87 cents a hundredweight today, Friday. The October live cattle contract gained 72 cents a hundredweight. And the October feeder cattle contract dropped 40 cents a hundredweight in today's trade. Again, next week, the big report that agricultural traders will be watching, particularly in the grain market, will be the report on October 10th. That's our time for this week. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson saying thank you for joining us here on The Markets.